นโมทัสสะกวาโตอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมบุตหัสสังนโมทัสสะกวาโตอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมบุตหัสสังนโมทัสสะกวาโตอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมบุตหัสสังพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสSo welcome to the Dhammapalans, the Leeds Buddhist group, which very well represented this evening, and um, happy to see you all here. And uh, I'm aware that uh, also this is um, the occasion of Pip and family <laughs> marking Pip's 30th anniversary of her life-transforming retreat. Thirty years ago, with Ajahnando, and this is uh, this is something worth celebrating, and um, a joy to uh, recognize commitment. The Dhammapalan group is it older than thirty years? About thirty years, also about that time. And um, to see folk who are really committed to something in the spiritual realm, not just committed to uh, making money and uh, all these other things that do require commitment as well, but committed to the inner work and. Consistency, sticking with something, and so it seems to me this is perhaps something that uh, we could usefully dwell on. Consider what is it that what is it that helps us stay with something like this? Something we we recognize the benefit, we see this is important, and we are not just interested, but we're able to stick with it. How do we do this? And Or where do we fail? How do we lose it? And and I'm sure all of us have uh, recognized in our own lives the the temptation to give up, uh, of just not wanting to get up in the morning. Yeah, so I'm going to get up and do my meditation, and I just oh I can't be bothered, or I'll do it tomorrow, or or exercise routine. <laughs> <laughs> sticking with your exercise routine, you uh, can't be bothered, and then the next thing you know, we've lost the momentum. And I think um, I find it helpful to if, if any of you have ever seen um, people starting a fire by rubbing sticks together. I find that a helpful image. I, I've seen it. I've seen people doing this uh, you know, out in the bush and just rubbing sticks together and huffing and puffing and and putting some. Some dry grass on until you've got a a flame. You've got a fire, and you can do some cooking. And this uh, this image I find a helpful image for for the spiritual life, where you, know, you feel like you want to take a break, you want to give up. But what happens? You lose the momentum. And if you're trying to get a fire going, you can't take a break. 
You've got to keep at it, you've got to keep at it, you've got to keep at it, and then something takes. And So this resolution, and this determination to stick with something, we see the benefit, and yet we can lose the momentum if we're not careful. And certainly uh, putting ourselves in situations like on a retreat situation and uh, this occasion of celebrating Pip's first retreat 30 years ago and what a life-transforming experience that was. Something of that nature can certainly help us stick with something. uh, I've met folk who've never done retreats before and, and they talk about how difficult it is to keep up the practice and I stop and I think about it and say, yeah, if you've never done a retreat, I don't know, if I'd never done a retreat, I'm not sure how it would have been because my own first retreat, which was um, however many years ago, was also a life-changing experience. Where you have a taste of something significantly different from anything else you've ever experienced. For instance, when you realize that it's an inner reality that we need to change, the peace, the contentment, the ease that we're looking for is not actually out there. That by learning how to discipline attention, to simplify our life, to stop talking, to stop sending the energy outwards, to eat a minimum amount of food and to focus the attention skillfully, patiently, inwards, you can experience a shift that has a profound effect on our lives. And, and I do think that um, can help stick with, help us stick with the practice. Also, what um, I would suggest is, is really important is Recognizing, recognizing how to translate what we experience on a retreat into daily life practice. Uh, you can have retreats and you can have significantly beautiful, peaceful, different experiences and that can just result in becoming addicted to retreats. And of course, we've probably all seen that as well. Where people, I've got to do another retreat and and uh, no contentment, no ease, no clarity. And in fact, we, have, uh, we can have resentment for our everyday life and just be dwelling on the thought of the next retreat that we're going to do. Uh, now, if we, if we feed that basic view, if we hold on to that basic view and we don't recognize it for what it is, that can undermine motivation to keep practice going. But if conversely we recognize that there's formal practice, whether it's a retreat or whether it's sitting for our 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes in the morning or the evening, formal practice and daily life practice have to go together. They are different. Essentially, what's important is mindfulness. The Buddha highlighted mindfulness as an essential ingredient, whatever we're doing, whether it's formal practice or, or daily life practice, but the 
experience of formal practice and the experience of daily life practice can be distinctly different. When we put time aside, whether it's sitting in the morning or in the evening with minimal distractions, or we go on retreat, again with minimal distractions, no needing to talk and relate and busy ourselves doing emails and texting and tweeting and all the other activity, and put all that aside for a while, and then it gives a certain sort of convenience. The mind can calm more easily. And if we think that's the only situation, the only circumstance in which we can practice, well, that's that's unfortunate. When we come into daily life practice, there is lots more stimulus. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impression. All the activity, whether it's the electronic activity, communicating with people, or whether it's the physical work that we're doing, all of that stimulus provides, if you like, a, a coarser environment, a coarser atmosphere in which to practice. And it's not so refined, and in a way it's not so easy. So we need a shift of emphasis. But if we devalue that, that can really undermine our motivation for practice. We need to learn to value that. And I tell people when they're coming off retreat or coming out of meditation to use that period of time where you're coming out of retreat or coming out of formal meditation, that period of time, that transition to watch what's happening in the mind. If at that period the desire comes up, I want to go back into peaceful tranquility again, watch that. Don't just follow it. I want to go back on retreat. What a pity this retreat is ending. Watch that. Because if we don't watch that, if we don't see that, if we cling to that, if we get caught up in that momentum, we're just caught up in desire. Now, it's a lot more subtle than than you know, wanting to go to New York on holiday or something, you know, or, or wanting to upgrade your gadgets or something, uh, uh, wanting... To stay on retreat or wanting a peaceful state of mind is a much more refined level of desire for sure. However, if we don't see it for what it is, if we don't engage wise reflection, if we don't get interested in this subtle but nevertheless irritating state, if we don't get interested in it, we're going to make a problem out of it. We create a problem, even out of the desire to be on retreat or the desire to meditate, we can create a problem out of. And so, when we're coming, as I said, when we're coming out of retreat or out of formal meditation into daily life, it's a very important period to watch what mind states we're experiencing. The disappointment as, as a sense of openness and clarity and calm that perhaps you found while you're on retreat or in a formal meditation as you experience this closing down contracting if the feeling of disappointment arises at that point we want to watch that if we just resist it or follow it or grasp it or believe it and get caught up in it then we create a problem how we create the problem the problem is by grasping by getting lost in preference Of course, being on retreat is beneficial if it introduces us to a new level of awareness, a new perspective on experience. Yes, definitely being on retreat can be very helpful. However, if the experience of being on retreat 
just introduces us to another level of clinging, well, that's unfortunate. So if we want to really benefit from our retreat experience, if we want to find the staying power to keep our practice going year after year, decade after decade, and if we really want to keep it going, we need to find a way of appreciating daily life practice, really valuing daily life practice. So often I hear people talking in disrespectful ways of their effort in daily life. They're making good effort. They're keeping precepts, they're being restrained, they're reflecting, they're considering the suffering inwardly and outwardly in the world. And when you're surrounded by all the the insanity that there is out there, that's good effort. That's worthy of respect. But people talk about it in in very disrespectful ways. Why? (laughs) Because it's not as much fun as being on retreat. You know, being on retreat, we've got an inspiring teacher to to give you a talk every evening and all these lovely people around you to support you and your spiritual effort, of course, that's in one way preferable, more agreeable. But, you know, that's that's just like having summer, you know. I mean, summer changes into autumn and then winter. If you get upset about it, well, how clever is that? Not very clever. There is change. And so we accord with summer and we accord with winter. Similarly, we need to learn to accord with retreat opportunities, formal practice opportunities, and equally appreciate daily life practice. And, and this is a different mode of practice. So one of the things, and I was mentioning there, is, is learning to get interested in how, where, and when we create problems out of life. It doesn't matter who we are, but we're always going to experience disappointment. You're coming off retreat and you see your heart collapsing because you don't yet have the strength of samadhi, the strength of sati, to stay in that open state and investigate mind states as they arise. So there's an experience of closing down and then natural sense of disappointment. Instead of judging that, Instead of feeling embarrassed about that, can we get interested in that? We don't need to get embarrassed about suffering. Now, I say that as if it's easy. <laughs> of course, it's not easy. You know, we all have this thing that, you know, somehow, well, I have it, that, that if you're suffering, you're somehow failing. You know, you're not enlightened. Well, how many enlightened people do you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's very difficult, very rare to get free from suffering. But we have faith that freedom from suffering is possible, which is why we embrace the Buddha's teaching. So we need to stop getting embarrassed about suffering and actually get interested in it, open up to it. Four noble truths. The first one is there is suffering. Statement of fact. There is suffering. Gross, coarse suffering, subtle, refined suffering. How can we be equally present for it however it manifests with our faculties of confidence and energy and mindfulness and collectedness and discernment the five spiritual faculties that we hone down and refine in formal practice how can we meet our experience of limitation of suffering in a way whereby we can turn it into wisdom which is what it's all about yeah. Uh, several times lately I've 
talked about the subject of the fact that this is uh, more than enough food, clothing, shelter and medicine in the world for everybody, absolutely everybody, but not everybody has their fair share. And why is it that way? It's because of the lack of wisdom. How do we give rise to wisdom? Well, surely again, that's why we embrace the Buddha's teachings. We believe in this, we trust in this, we have confidence that wisdom is not a commodity that you acquire. It's a perspective that manifests when conditions are ready. When the habitual contraction of selfishness is sufficiently softened, when the fires of greed, aversion and delusion have been quelled enough, then another perspective manifests. But for us, most of us, most of the time, the fires of greed, aversion and delusion are are, uh, so wild that we don't see clearly and we make mistakes. There's the uh, couple of verses in the Dhammapada where the Buddha talks about if you mistake the false for the real and the real for the false, you remain stuck in the false. And then if you see the false as the false and the real as the real, you attain to the perfectly real. And the perfectly real here being Dhamma, clarity, right view, clear seeing. To arrive at that, there needs to be seeing the false as the false and the real as the real. But for a lot of the time, we're mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false. That is, when greed arises, we think, oh, if I follow this, then I'm going to be happy. Yeah, like... If I just roll over and go to sleep, and <laughs> I'll feel better instead of getting up and meditating like I said last night I was going to do. You know, or keeping precepts, I recognize the benefit of the precepts. Yeah, and integrity matters. How can I complain about the wars in Iraq and Syria and Ukraine and Russia and Israel and the Gaza Strip, how can I complain about all these, this crazy behaviour of these sad confused people if I myself am not maintaining integrity and we have that inspiration and so we determine to keep the precepts and then in a moment of heedlessness temptation to compromise integrity and speech is very easy yeah the inclination to compromise integrity and we break the precepts. And, yeah. Now, it's so easy to do, but what's important is not that we just get lost in our habitual tendencies of then judging and condemning and taking sides against ourselves, but we get interested in the consequence. Daily life practice means that when suffering arises, we ask the question, what is the cause of suffering? Second noble truth. What is the cause of suffering? I've heard people talk about, oh, I don't have enough samadhi and I haven't been on retreat lately. And so, well, you can do that if you want. But another option is to change your perspective and use the faith, the energy, the mindfulness, the collectiveness, the discernment that we've built up in our formal practice to investigate. You really get to investigate and say, what is, you know, somebody says something that you then 
feel suffering and then there's a temptation to blame, to criticize somebody else or yourself. But how about actually stopping and looking inwards, feeling inwards, say, what is the cause? What is the real cause of this hurt feeling? Is somebody else hurting me? Does somebody else have the power to hurt me with their speech? It can appear that way. But then it can appear that you need to eat more or sleep more or need more money. I read an article recently, some fellow down south just gave away his company, which was worth a million pounds, because he decided that he only needed £30,000 a year to be happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that guy knows how to reflect. This is actually true, he did. He gave away his company to other people because he did his research and he decided £30,000 a year was all he needed for him, his wife and his kids to be happy. Yeah. Now, the apparent reality is I need more. You've got a million, well, I need two million. You've got two million, you need four million. You've got four million, you need ten million. That's the apparent reality if the fires of greed are burning. So we have our interest and commitment to formal practice to give ourselves a taste of the fires being quelled, the fires of greed, the fires of aversion, the fires of delusion being quelled. You get a taste of it. You feel how natural that is, how appropriate that is. And then we transfer that faith and confidence into daily life. We don't just take a position, hopefully, into clinging to that temporary state of peace that we might have experienced on retreat. It's very easy to do. The Buddha, the the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, there's these three suttas which you will hear being chanted regularly in the monastery, the uh, the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, the Anatalakana Sutta, and the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, called the three cardinal suttas. And the third one there, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, the Buddha is discussing this. He's talking about this. Raga gina, dosa gina, moha gina, the fires of raga, of lust, uh, the fires of anger, the fires of delusion. And the world is burning with these. And how do we address it? How do we deal with it? We all suffer. How are we dealing with it? Well, those of us that have confidence and faith in the Buddhist teaching, we deal with it like this. We go on retreat. We use formal meditation to hone down the spiritual faculties. And then we transfer those into daily life so that when suffering arises, we investigate. We don't just escape. So there's another alternative. We can just try to escape suffering. That's a very... um, if you, can, if you find a commodity that helps people escape from suffering, it's very marketable, the holiday industry. Although most people are miserable when they go on holidays. I don't know if you've noticed how miserable people are when they go on holidays. It's the favourite time for divorce lawyers in the holiday season because people come back from holiday. It's the last straw. They can't stand each other anymore. And so they decide, OK, then go off and get a divorce. And that costs a huge amount of money. But it's very marketable. 
holidays is promising an alternative, something different, something beautiful. They don't tell you about, of course, the, the building site next to your hotel and the mosquitoes and, and well, I won't go into all <laughs> the things that people experience when they go on holidays, but it's a very marketable commodity holiday because it promises us escape, as, of course, does all our gadgets. Yeah, all our gadgets, you see... You know, people, <laughs> we've seen them all, you know, texting, the amount of texting and tweeting that's going on. I, I was reflecting recently how in future generations people might talk about our generation as, you know, how we talk about the Romans as Nero fiddling while Rome burned. Well, they talk about us as texting while the world burns because it is burning. The world is burning with madness, with insanity. There's all these resources, all these opportunities. Never before has humanity been better educated, more wealthy, uh, more access to spiritual teachings, more opportunities to educate and investigate ourselves and, and cultivate wisdom, and yet we're still pursuing our habits of escape because that's what happens when the fires of greed, aversion and delusion are burning. We make these mistakes. But again, we don't just take a position against it. That's, that's, that's easy, but it doesn't resolve the problem. That's like putting fuel on the fire. And what the Buddha discovered, and the Buddha encouraged us to do, is to pull back, go on retreat, train the mind with formal meditation, get a taste of what it's like to quell these fires momentarily and feel that more natural state of ease and contentment and then bring that into daily life so that when we do suffer, we don't just escape. We don't just dream about another spiritual holiday that we can go on, but we actually stay where we are, doing what we're doing. If fear arises... We get interested in fear. What is, what is actually going on in the body when fear arises? What does the body feel like? Do we have the sati, do we have the well-established mindfulness in the body to be able to investigate fear? Where it arises, where does fear arise? Where does anger arise in the body you know, to have faith, to have confidence, to have trust, to, to accept ourselves where we meet ourselves, not to escape ourselves and become some sort of imagined me, but to meet ourselves where we are and to transform the suffering into wisdom. Again, remembering that it's not the lack of material things in the world that brings about the struggle and the pain the suffering that we all experience is the lack of wisdom. I often reflect on that story in the scriptures where the Buddha was talking to his son Rahula. And he asks his son Rahula, he says, uh, Rahula, what is a mirror for? And Rahula replies to his father, he says, a mirror is for seeing your face in. And the Buddha replies, so I say, wise reflection is for seeing the mind. Not running off and doing some retreat and having another peaceful experience, 
and not just developing another peaceful state of mind. Those things are important, but they're relatively important. They strengthen the heart, they strengthen the mind, and they refresh the being on many levels. But then the work is when we meet ourselves in our state of limitation, whether it's greed or whether it's anger or whether it's confusion, delusion, we get interested in that. We don't make a problem out of it. We don't build on it by adding to it, saying it shouldn't be this way. And that's, that's for adolescence, just to slap a judgment on ourselves when we meet ourselves in a limited way of being. That's, that's very easy to do. An adult attitude is one of, what's the cause of this? What's really going on there? I've been rereading some of Ajahn Chah's teachings recently, some of the talks he gave and have been translated and printed and, and one of the, one of the uh, images that I came across is where he's talking about samadhi and vipassana and he comes up with this image. He said, it's like a knife. Meditation is like a knife. You know, samadhi is like the handle and vipassana is like the blade. Now, if you don't have a handle... <laughs> holding the blade of course that's dangerous yeah. if all we can do is think <laughs> and keep the mind busy with investigation investigate, investigate, investigate investigate. you drive yourself potty we need a handle we need tranquility, we need ease we need well-being we need peacefulness but if all we've got is a handle if all we've got is peacefulness and contentment and ease well you can become very stupid actually you may be very happy but stupidly happy and not ultimately of any great benefit to yourself or others. That that kind of happiness is not reliable happiness. Momentary, temporary samadhi is not going to solve our problems. Another image Ajahn Chah was that of like, you know, samadhi said it can be like a brick. You put it on the weeds and of course the weeds don't grow. Obviously, because they've got a brick on them. (laughs) But that doesn't mean to say that the weeds are dead. Weeds are often very strong. The roots are very deep. And you take the brick off, and guess what? The reeds start growing again. So this image of uh, samadhi and vipassana being like a knife, I think, is very helpful. Whether it's in our formal meditation that we do on a regular basis with commitment or whether it's being on retreat, that helps bring strength and clarity and tranquility and ease and focus to the heart and mind and then we use that to investigate whether it's again in the context of the, the subtle state of mind that you might find on a retreat or formal meditation but if we want to keep this thing going I don't know anybody who can live on retreat there might be a few very rare individuals who've got that sort of ability but I've never met any for the rest of us, we need to translate that level of practice into daily life practice. Some people will need more formal retreat, formal practice or retreat. Some people will not need so much. You know, people are different characters. But I would suggest all of us need both. In the formal practice and daily life practice. With the underlying motivation... Hmm, not just to run away from my problems and my suffering, but to understand, to have the wisdom, 
that sees the way things really are. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Dhammayam bhagata sadhu karam bhagata masay